everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, so, you know, March 2020, maybe, maybe you have to go back to February 2020, we were all somewhat ignorant. I know in my case, when Discovery made the decision in mid-March that we would have to go all the way online for our services for the sake of the well-being and health of people. I remember reaching out to our worship team at the time and thinking, let's plan the grand reunion. Like, it's looking like Easter's not great, but I'm sure by June, I thought, we would be packing the room again and really celebrating this very short window of time where we were inconvenienced, we were displaced. Well, that turned out to be naive, and I don't know if you were as naive as I was, but I know I was quite slow to catch up. And I think part of the slowness was, a, I'd never been through this before, just like you, the, the whole world, uh, everyone in our lifetime, this was our first pandemic, but also because my default posture is control and convenience. That's my default posture. I'm not proud of it. Uh, it gets me into trouble a lot. I'm very comfortable sharing it with you because it's your default posture too. And how do I know that? Because you live in a Western culture. Uh, that's how I can safely make such a broadly generalized statement that our default posture is comfort and control. And so we just are so anxious to get things back on our terms. And listen, I don't say that with guilt or shame. It's just the way we are. It's the way we're being conditioned in our culture. And particularly for those of you who are not followers of Christ, this is the journey of following Jesus Christ, is the very difficult transformation from you and I being the center of it all to being in control, to being comfortable, to trusting that God is the center of it all, to being uncomfortable, that's what's called walking by faith. It's very difficult. I don't know that we say this enough. Those of us who are followers of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would like to let you in on how the rest of us think. It's very difficult. I've been a follower of Christ for three decades. You would think by now I'd be getting pretty good at it. Nope. And so here we are in the last week. COVID is on an 80% uptick. There is a new variant that is more deadly than the one before. Where are we heading? What's going on? What does it mean for our church? Uh, the fact is, we don't know. And I know what I'm noticing in my life is a weariness. So come on, I've, we've done, we've paid it, we've paid, right? Therefore, we're owed. That's how I feel about it. I'm not, again, I'm not proud of it. Um, so just a couple of things before we get into the message, because this is connected to the message, but this is a great time if you are not receiving the Discovery Newsletter, I would highly encourage you to today get on to this link and make sure you're receiving it. That's the best place you're going to get the latest information. As we once again do our research, navigate what we believe is the best way to live by faith and love our neighbor. How do we serve each other in these times? Because it's likely that we are in for some more inconvenience for a while yet. And also, not just inconvenience, but it's likely that this is the time, this is the hour for the church to be the church. To love people well, to help lower others' anxiety, to show them the love of God, to welcome them into community, whether it's in person or online. So here we are in an uptick when we're wanting things to be back to normal. We don't know if it's going to be worse than before, if it's going to be longer or shorter. We don't know. But what happens in these situations is we ask ourselves, why do bad things happen? And uh, then oftentimes it gets more personal. We feel picked on. 
anytime something bad happens to you, it doesn't feel objective. It's not like, well, that's the way it goes. Bad things happen to people. Something bad happened to me. I guess that's just objectively what happens. No, when bad things happen to us, we feel singled out. We feel like somebody is bullying us or picked on. And so we ask the question, why do bad things happen to me? In the last 24 hours, I've reached out to three different people whose loved ones are on life support with COVID. Just to reach out sometimes on a phone call, sometimes on a text, just to say, I'm with you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for your loved one. Suddenly, I don't know about you, but my life is surrounded by life and death. We're talking young people. One of the guys is in his 20s, one is in his 40s, another woman in her 40s. These are young people we're talking about. And it's natural to say, why do bad things happen to me? And then, of course, you get into a church, and a guy like me stands up with a Bible. Uh, This is an iPad, by the way. So it's also conveniently the source of Ted Lasso. It's everything. But it is also a Bible. And that's when the question gets the stickiest. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to me? And then I think where we get to the heart of the matter in the church, why does God allow bad things to happen to me? That's the crux. That's the question that human beings have been asking for as long as history has been recorded. Why does God allow bad things to happen to me? Now, before humans understood God and Jesus Christ, there was a a, a belief pattern, particularly in the Roman Empire. The Greeks kind of made it famous, the Egyptians before them. It wasn't a God, it was gods. They believed in a multitude of gods, and they had an answer to this question. Uh, They actually have an advantage over those of us who are sophisticated Western people. These ancient, uh, you know, Eastern people who are kind of mythological and we look back on them like they were quaint, you know. They all wore tunics, for example, and togas. Very quaint. Uh, But we, we look back at them, we think, oh, how quaint. They had this belief system about all these gods. But they didn't wrestle with this question because they knew the answer. Their answer was, one of the gods is picking on me. One of the gods is bored and just wants to toy with a human for recreation. So what I need to do, they would say, is sacrifice a child or an animal or a crop or something to appease the God. They kind of had, had an understanding of gods like we do with the IRS. What's the least I can do to keep them off my back? That was kind of their general understanding uh, of the gods back then. But the problem is, the problem that we have as followers of Jesus is we believe there's one God who is all-powerful, This is not a God that divides the responsibilities like in the Roman Empire where there's a God of the sun and there's a God of the crops and there's a God to help you make a baby. There's one God, we believe, and worse yet, we believe this is a very involved God, very involved in the lives of the people, whereas back in the Roman Empire and the Greeks and the Egyptians, they believed the gods were largely indifferent. You'd kind of have to bother a God or bribe a God to get help. We believe in a God that knows everything, is all-powerful, they're very involved, and, and worst of all, we believe a God in lo- of, that loves us, whereas back then they believed the gods were out to get them. Okay, so we have an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-loving God. Why does God allow bad things to happen? This, in my life, came to a crux when I was a hospital chaplain. This is when I first had to wrestle this to the ground. I was much younger than I ever thought I would be when I was wrestling this question to the ground. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And I, I suppose the reason I had to wrestle it to the ground is because I was asked that question almost every day of my job by somebody whose loved one was dying or who had just gotten bad news and was so desperate for hope from somebody they would page the chaplain 
And this little 24-year-old green kid would walk into the room with his suit and tie back then. And they would ask, I mean, I was barely shaving. And they would say, can you please tell us, we believe in God, we're faithful, we're church attenders, can you please tell us why does God allow bad things to happen? And that really took me, that really shook me, and I did some deeper work, and I suppose in some ways it's the work I'm still doing three decades later, two and a half decades later. And here's how I boiled it down. I think the problem we face as humans is if God can, then why doesn't he? I think that's the crux of it. If we believe God can, then why doesn't God? That's like, why not one more miracle, God? It doesn't cost you anything. This is, I believe, perhaps the most profound and difficult question a human being can ask. And if you've ever asked it or wrestled with it or had a bone to pick with God, I can just say you're in very good company. That's normal. I would even go so far as to say that God invites that kind of engagement with God. But where things get interesting is as we open Scripture, we see that the authors of Scripture, they don't ask this question. Kind of like the ancient Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians before them, the authors of Scripture who believe in one God, who believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving God, same God that we believe in, why is it that they're not asking this question? Why is it that we wrestle with it so profoundly? And I would suggest that one of the primary reasons is because we are so profoundly driven by comfort and control. That any time our life is anything other than us in control and us comfortable, we start getting philosophical with God. Again, I'm not saying this to blame anybody. I just think this is the world that we live in and are conditioned in. This was brought home really keenly to me when... I went to visit one of our global partners, Dan and Christy Rich in Paraguay, not a Western culture, and I saw so much suffering of people that was so preventable by simple medicine, and these people quietly suffering while being faithful to God, never asking this question, and it drove me crazy as a Westerner. Wait, all you have to do is go to the hospital. It's $5. I've got that money right here in my pocket. We can get this done. And Dan Rich is saying to me, you're a real control freak, aren't you, Steve? But if we can do something about it, we should. And Dan's like, there's a whole other way to live. There's a whole other way to exist in the kingdom of God. As we open Scripture, we see that the authors of Scripture, they don't ask this question. They have a different lens to view life. And what I'm about to say, I have said this every week that I've got up in this villain series, because I believe this, this idea of why does God allow bad things to happen is so profoundly ingrained in us in the West that I want to keep chipping away at it. The people in the Bible are not wondering why God allows things. They're wondering why we allow things. The question of the authors of Scripture is why do humans allow so much evil and suffering? Because the authors of Scripture, they don't believe that evil and bad things come from God. They also don't believe that God allows evil and suffering. What they teach is that Satan, the prince, the prince of darkness, and human beings partner up to allow evil and suffering. That's why there's evil and suffering. So the authors of Scripture are more interested in asking, what can human beings do to stop associating with evil, start associating with God, who's the author and sustainer of good, to change the world? 
Uh, now, for some of you, particularly those of you who are not followers of Christ, but even those of you who are followers of Christ, it probably made you very uncomfortable that I mentioned Satan right now. It's very difficult to say the word Satan without making people uncomfortable. You could try it this week at work. Just have a coffee with someone, go out to lunch and just say, Satan, 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 and then stop, and they'll be all freaked out. It's just a hobby. Just a hobby. Um, I tried to stop believing in some kind of Satan figure. I, I went through a phase where I was all sophisticated in my theology, and I thought, no, maybe that's some kind of mythological thing. I actually have come back to the clear teaching of Scripture, which is that evil is personified. It comes from a person. It is, it is, it is from a person because evil feels personal to us. So the question is, um, what the authors of Scripture say is God actually keeps his hand of restraint on the world. So without the goodness of God, we would be much more evil and there would be much more suffering than there is now. That's the view of Scripture. Now, you are free to disagree with that. Some of you particularly who are intellectually quick, you're like, I feel like you're trying to have it both ways. In which case, I just invite you, as I have before, to watch your favorite Hollywood apocalyptic movie like Mad Max or the Book of Eli, one of those movies, where you see when there's no influence of good and humans left to their own devices, it is just dog-eat-dog. Dog. Even, even the unchurched Hollywood vision of a world without goodness is the same as the vision of Scripture's vision. So what that means is we are not guaranteed and we are not owed a straightforward life. We want a smooth life. I, I've been paying attention to my own wants and desires lately, particularly in preparation for this message. I was just asking the Lord, you know, that prayer from Psalm 139, Lord, search me and show me my ways, kind of that prayer. Because I've noticed in my own life, I, I, feel like, I feel like I've suffered enough. So I feel like I've banked. It's not that I want an easy life. I just feel like I've graduated from a difficult life. Isn't that ridiculous? When I was a hospital chaplain, one of the chaplains, her son was a quadriplegic. He dived into a pool when he was 14, and it was shallow, and he hit his head on the ground. And so at 14, had to learn how to deal with being a quadriplegic the rest of his life in a wheelchair. And so uh, the chaplain, the, the mum, she had to learn. And he had been a quadriplegic about six years by the time I met her. And she said something really profound. I've never forgotten this. She said, you know, when something so terrible happens, like your child becoming a quadriplegic, you think that's as bad as it's going to get. And so any little thing that happens after that just puts you over the edge. She said, so for example, him being a quadriplegic exhausts me and then he gets a cold. And it's just, she's like, it's, and I'm like, oh, come on. Like as if uh, my lot is hard enough in life. I think some of you have been there. When you, you are absolutely at the end of your rope and this little thing happens and it just sends you into oblivion. We are not guaranteed or owed a straightforward life. We want a smooth life. God does not owe us a smooth life. And so some of you who, again, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, you're saying, man, this pastor, he really knows how to sell Christianity. Like he's making it. Why would you do it? What's the benefit? Because a difficult life with God is so much better than a difficult life on your own. We believe in a God that is attracted to pain. You know those kinds of people that when the going gets tough, they're nowhere to be found? You have a God that when the going gets tough, God is right there with you. Back in 2005, I remember I was actually interviewing for the job here at Discovery. Lisa and I were living in Las Vegas. 
And I had to call Lene Spicer, who was running the search for my role, and say to her, we have to change our plans. My friend Kathy just died. And I have to fly to South Dakota to be with my friend Dan. And uh, Kathy, someone we dearly love, she was a life group member of ours. She was suddenly and unexpectedly killed in a car accident. Dan and Kathy had moved to South Dakota about a year beforehand, and we'd still kept in touch. We'd been in a small group together for years. And so three of us dropped everything we were doing, and we flew to South Dakota to be with Dan. And uh, then a few months later, I went back to visit Dan. He was a dear friend of mine. So after we got through the initial crisis and the funeral and just the worst thing you ever have to do when you have to bury a friend and be the one leading it. And so a few months later, I went back to visit with Dan, just spent the weekend with him. We're just driving around. And Dan said, he said, you know, I've been a follower of Jesus my whole life, but God never really became real to me until Kathy died. And I've never experienced the closeness of God like I have now. He says, I would not ask this of anybody. I would not want anyone to go through what I'm going through. And also, God is closer than a brother. I can't even put it into words how viscerally close God is. So the reason to become a follower of Christ or one of many is because you have a constant companion who is with you in the difficult times. And not only that, you have somebody who has suffered like you suffer. We do not worship an unsympathetic God, says the author of Hebrews. We worship a God who has suffered like we have, who knows what it is like to battle with being a human being. And so I just want to point out uh, one thing that we can all do that can help offset the challenges that come our way. And so we turn in the Old Testament in this villain series to the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, he went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Now, I practiced that phrase for about three minutes before coming out today. Ephrathites from Bethlehem. You want a tongue twister? That right, I'm just telling you, Ephrathites from Bethlehem. It's very hard to say. They went to Moab and they lived there. So they relocated from Jerusalem because of the famine. A famine is what kicked them out. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons, and they had married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, that last sentence there, both Marlon and Kilion also died, this phrase here, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When you and I read that in the 21st century, we see grief. When the storyteller told that back in the days of the judges, the audience sees systemic poverty. Let me rephrase it for you in a way that we would understand. After they lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And so because Naomi was left without her two sons or her husband, she had no way to earn an income. She had no guarantee of putting food on the table. She had no way to survive as a woman. That's what the author's saying. 
And so each week we've gathered here, we've opened up the Bible, we've looked at a villain in the Bible. This week in the book of Ruth, the villain is a weather pattern. It's a famine. You know, oftentimes we look at a person or people, uh, we, we, you know, last week or a couple of weeks ago, I think we're looking at Jonah, like even when a man of God is a villain. Sometimes the disruptor in your life is what is known by the insurance industry as an act of God. You ever know, I've always thought like I, I have an insurance policy on my house and there's all these exclusions and they've got this broad brush category, act of God. I'm like, leave, I feel a bit defensive for God because I'm a pastor. Leave God out of it, buddy. Like God's in heaven saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not the cause of those things. But in this case, it's a famine. And the reason I wanted to bring it to us this week is because I think we are also, we're not in a famine in this country, quite the opposite, particularly those of us in these zip codes, uh, those who are tuning in in the kind of the Colorado area. We do not live in a food desert, even though some people in America do live in a food desert. For us, it's not a famine, but it is a global pandemic that has completely disrupted everything in our life. What's also interesting with weather patterns, if we get back to weather patterns, weather patterns are always regional. Like, okay, we have a global pandemic, but I was watching the news yesterday just to see, I thought, I'm going to turn on the news and I'm going to count the weather patterns in the 30-minute news. There were three just yesterday. There was the earthquakes in Haiti. There were the fires in California. And there were the tropical storms coming off the coast of the United States. All three of them who have killed people. It used to be before global news and the internet that weather patterns were regional and you didn't know about them all. But now, one of the burdens, one of the things that puts you and I into an existential angst about the goodness of God is we know too much. And we expect this whole world to be smooth. For right or wrong, American troops are now out of Afghanistan and Afghanistan is devolving into madness and chaos where the Taliban is now taking over again and the women are terrified and rightly so. We know too much. Whereas back in the Bible times, everything was regional. If there was something happening on the other side of the world, it would take months for that news to get to you. And by that time, it was resolved. It's one of the reasons we shake our fist to God and we say, how can you allow so much bad to happen? So much bad has always happened. And here we are in a global pandemic that I think many of us thought we'd be out of by now. And it looks like, I don't know, I might be wrong, but it looks like we might be heading into another intense season what do we do? Well, just a quick aside, because those of you who have been around here for a while, you know I, I'm incapable of opening the Old Testament without becoming a literary nerd. The husbands, Marlon and Kilion, if you Google their names in Hebrew, it means sickly and in poor health. I feel like when Ruth was doing her wedding vow, she should have looked into that. Do you, Ruth, take sickly boy to be your husband? I guess for now, she says. All right. And yes, okay, fine. Ruth's a chiasm. Google it yourself. Okay. So famine and the death of a loved one. Naomi's husband dies. Ruth's husband dies, which is another way of saying that her savings account is empty. Her safety net is gone. She is now considered the vulnerable population. She's now considered the marginalized people. In the Old Testament and also in Jesus, there are four groups of people that God says that God's people ought to be carefully attuned to. 
the alien, which is the foreigner, not the person on Mars. By the way, I'm one of those. Your friendly neighborhood immigrant. Yeah, my children, if you will, are alien love children. I'll let you figure that out. Yeah, the alien or the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and the Levite. Now, we're not going to worry about the Levite. No one really cares about them anymore. If you're interested in the Levite, you can Google them later on your own time. But the alien, the widow, and the orphan, Ruth is two out of these four. And she's utterly vulnerable. She's an immigrant. She's from Moab. And she's a widow. And she has no safety net. And Naomi, who's in the same boat, but has the ability to go back to Jerusalem to her people and get protection and get safety. So Naomi basically says, girls, I love you but it's every man for himself. It's in your best interest, Naomi's basically saying, for you to find somebody in Moab and marry them as quick as you can. Like, you can open Ruth, it's right there in the Bible. This isn't some sick version of The Bachelor. This is Naomi saying, if you stick with me, I'm gonna try to get married, but if your plan is for me to have a child and then wait for that kid to grow up, and again, if you read that in in the book of Ruth, you're like, oh, there's some kind of weird sexual thing going on here. No, it's purely about a welfare system. And Naomi is saying to her daughters-in-law, I cannot produce kids to get you to marry them in time. Your best chance of survival is to go back to your people in Moab. Try to find some dude to marry, any means necessary, girls, so you can survive, and I'm going to do the same thing in Jerusalem. And that's fascinating. Now, uh, Ruth is, is famously known as a love story, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. We're actually going to breeze through the love story pretty quickly. What I think is beautiful about Ruth is it's one of the most beautifully fleshed out realizations of God's vision for rich and poor to work together. That's, the, that's, that's Ruth. All of the laws that God gives us on how to take care of the poor all beautifully realized in Ruth. So Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to turn around and walk away, repent in the Hebrew, and Orpah turns her back and walks back to Moab, and Orpah's name means back of the neck. Pretty cool. But Ruth says, nope, and Ruth makes a vow. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go I w and where you will stay, let me try this again, I just butchered it. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And when you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is Ruth's vow to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And that phrase, where you die, I will die, Ruth is assuming we're going to die together and it's not going to be far off, but I'm with you until that moment. Uh, maybe you've been at a wedding where the couple get up and they actually recite this as their wedding vows. I've been to a number of weddings where Ruth chapter 1 is the Bible reading and some of those weddings where Ruth is used as the vows between the spouses because it's this beautiful lifelong commit commitment. What's interesting to me is Ruth makes a vow here and it changes, this vow changes the entire direction of her life. This vow, I don't know that she's aware of this, but this vow opens her up to God's blessings and God's surprises in ways she never could have fathomed. This vow for Ruth 
was a life-changing moment. The moment she made this vow is the moment she opened up the possibility of becoming King David's ancestor, of becoming part of the lineage of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Like this is this foreign woman from Moab who by simply making a commitment, a vow in uncertain times, suddenly these amazing things happen. Life-changing moment. The thing about life-changing moments is we don't always know we're in them. Has that ever happened to you? Like you look back and you're like, that was a life-changing moment and I didn't know it at the time, but I look back now and my life shifted from that moment. And so what I'm going to propose to you is one piece of homework. There's so much we could take out of Ruth. I'm going to invite you this week to prayerfully make a vow to God. Because I believe that making a vow to God is one way to offset our need to, for comfort and control in uncertain times. It's not a guarantee. It's not some kind of a quid pro quo thing where you make a vow and God does amazing things. This is not one of those things where, why don't you give the church $100 and we'll send you a prayer cloth and you'll probably get a million dollars back. We're not one of those churches. You can tell by the comb over. That's the sign. That's always the sign. But you can make a vow when you don't know what the future holds and your desire is for control and comfort, a vow forces you to open your heart to the goodness of God. Many of us in this church, we have made for years now a vow of financial generosity. Uh, you could make a vow, for example, to reach out to three people a week who you think are lonely or ill, particularly those of you who are uncomfortable around emotional people. You can make a vow, three people a week, you're going to reach out. You can make a vow of how you are going to behave with God regardless of the circumstances. You can read a vow, uh, make a vow to read scripture on a regular basis. Um, here's a good vow nowadays, how you'll treat people you passionately disagree with. You know that person where in your mind you're saying, that person's an idiot. That might be a good person because God can hear that. That might be a good person you make a vow about. If you're not a follower of Christ, you can make a vow. One of the things we encourage you to do here at Discovery is start reading the teachings of Jesus. All you have to do is simply read through the teachings of Jesus and simply do what Jesus says to do. So when Jesus says to walk an extra mile for the person who's putting something inconvenient on you, to love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, pretty good ideas, put them into practice, see what happens. You can make that vow. Uh, recently, I've been traveling more lately and I've been spending more time in hotels. And I'll just be honest, it's really lonely. It's just kind of a weird, like dehumanizing experience. So I could tell, okay, I need a vow in the morning to set myself up for the day. I also noticed, just to be completely frank, hotel coffee in COVID is not good coffee. And I believe it's a sin to drink bad coffee. So I struggle, just to be completely blunt, I struggle to read my scripture before good coffee. That might be an idol, I don't know, but it's just the way it is. I've tried reading the Apostle Paul and it's either coffee or whiskey. It's one or the other that helps. I don't know which, but for me it's coffee. And just, by the way, those of you freaked out, I'm tongue in cheek about the whiskey. Just saying it for a laugh, not because I do it. Anyway, so what I decided to do is, okay, I'm gonna download an audible Bible 
and I'm going to listen to a daily Bible audibly, and that might help. I made that vow, and so every time I'm in a hotel room, the first thing I do in the morning is I turn on the audio Bible, I listen to the scripture of the day, and it's as boring as dust. Because it, the, it just so happens that when I made that vow, I was in First Chronicles. The, the, the audio Bible daily was in First Chronicles. And I don't know if you know First Chronicles. If you don't know First Chronicles, that's because you already know it's boring, which is why you've been avoiding it. The first nine or ten chapters, all it is is the chronicler listing names. This person gave birth to this person who gave birth to this person. And then once they're done listing the, the gave birth names, then they do a census. Well, in this town, there were 10,000 of these kinds of people and there were 7,000 of these kinds of and I'm brushing my teeth like, Lord, have mercy. Why did I make this vow? But I didn't quit because I'd made a promise to God. And I have learned that I will not grow in Christ if I'm not willing to be bored. When I'm chasing a spiritual high, I'm in control. When I make a vow and I give myself to something where I'm not in control... My life opens up for God to show me things. Now, if you're waiting, like oftentimes a preacher will share this story, and then they'll say, and here's how my life was changed with First Chronicles. No, I just got through it. I just got through it. The reason you make a vow is it helps you behave when you don't want to. The reason you make a vow is because it helps you be better than you are on your own. And I think the reason you make a vow is it gets you out of control and into the control of God. And when God is in control of your life, remarkable things might happen. No guarantee, but they might happen. And it might be that you run into God in ways that you had not when you are busy complaining about where God is. So Ruth goes back to Jerusalem with Naomi and she needs a job. And she can't get a job. She's not, she's not an employable person. She's an immigrant. She doesn't have her green card. She's not allowed to work. And she's a woman. So her only real option is to fall on the goodness of Jerusalem. It just so happens that God told Jerusalem this little systemic poverty law tucked into Leviticus and Exodus, that other part of your Bible you find boring, that's way more fascinating than Chronicles. And in Leviticus and Exodus, God said, Hey, hey, Jerusalem, hey, farmers. You can grow a crop, and when you harvest that crop, you better do one take. You better not go and do a second harvest. Those of you who grew up in a farm, you know about the second harvest of hay. You do the harvest, you cut it, you bale the hay, you hope you get a second one before the season. In Jerusalem, that was illegal. You had to leave the rest of the crop, the outskirts. Why? So the alien, the widow, and the orphan, and the wildlife, interestingly, were allowed to go on their own time and pick enough food for themselves. Amazing. The gleaning laws in the Old Testament. And Ruth operates under the gleaning principle. And so Naomi is walking back to Jerusalem with Ruth. And she's like, look, I know things were hard in Moab. It's going to be okay in Jerusalem because you're an alien and a widow. You get to glean. So Ruth gets up early one morning. She puts on her work clothes, her work gloves. She finds a field and she starts gleaning. And then there's a break, and this happens to be a field where the, the property owner, the farmer, is, is a pure gentleman. He's just a kind human being. Now, what is unfortunately true is in some of these situations, the farmer and the field workers would exploit the vulnerable person, sometimes sexually, 
and not necessarily in Jerusalem, but just as a general rule in the ancient Near East. And so they take a lunch break from gleaning all morning, and it just so happens that the farm owner and Ruth are sitting kind of close to each other. Now, my theory is, there's no Bible backup for this, my theory is that Ruth was beautiful and Boaz was attracted to her, so he made sure to sit next to Ruth at the lunch table like you did in middle school. Same, same. And they get up a conversation. Our story picks up in verse 11 of chapter 2. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and how you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. That's romance right there, people. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. In other words, when she gleans wrong, don't worry about it. Even, he says to the, this is my favorite part of the whole book of Ruth, even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. Ruth, uh, Boaz is basically saying, we don't want to injure her back. So like she doesn't have to yank the stalks out. Why don't you guys like pull them out and just kind of leave them on the ground so it's easier for her? Like he's basically helping even the playing field. In my imagination, what he actually ordered, this is just a pure imagination. I think Boaz told the field workers, take some stalks out and lay them out in the shape of an alphabet. B loves R forever. And she's walking around. She's like, what could this mean? You know, I don't know. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered and amounted about an ephah, which is about a week's worth of food. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough, and her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. You can read the rest of the story on your own. You can see what happens after that moment. But that all happened to Ruth because she made a vow. And I'm not making some case, like Ruth is a singular story. It's unique to Ruth. You might make a vow and something so magical as what happened to Ruth may or may not happen to you. What I know will happen is it'll, it'll give you a bearing in uncertain times and also making a vow, some kind of promise to God will open up your heart to the control of God. And one of the greatest reasons to make a vow to God is because God made a vow to us. Roman gods, the Greek gods, Egyptian gods, they didn't know the human nothing. The distinctive, even in today's culture where, where Islam believes in Allah and Hindus believe in all their gods, like even in today's modern religious practices, Christianity and Judaism are the only religions that teach that the God intentionally obligates God's self to the human. And so God's faithfulness is fully expressed to us on the cross. We do not serve a God who is unsympathetic. We serve one who has suffered and who knows. I'm going to invite 
Jimmy and Alex and the team to come out as they prepare to lead us in worship of this God. And I just want to put a quote up on the screen. I've shared this a few times over the years, but I still think I find it helpful and comforting and it makes my heart want to worship this good God. It makes me want to follow this good God. This is from Frederick Beekner. Beekner says, God is all powerful. God is all good. Terrible things happen. You can reconcile any two of these propositions with each other, but you can't reconcile all three. The problem of evil is perhaps the single greatest problem of religious faith. There have been numerous theological and philosophical attempts to solve it, but when it comes down to the reality of evil itself, they're none of them worth much. Christian science solves the problem of evil by saying that it doesn't exist except as an illusion of mortal mind. Buddhism solves it in terms of reincarnation and the exorable law of cause and effect whereby a person is merely reaping the consequence of evil deeds it committed in another life. Christianity, on the other hand, ultimately offers no theoretical solution at all. It merely points to the cross. And it says that practically speaking, there is no evil so dark, so obscene, not even this, but that God can turn it to good. If you're in the room, let's stand and let's worship.